think at the beginning of this retreat I talked about um, the context, establishing the context within which to to meditate or cultivate. Um, the context I suggested then was the context of the refuges and the precepts. That is, one, one abides within this particular field, sphere of consciousness, a consciousness that that uh, first of all goes to that place of trust, of faith, of uh, of being able to have trust and faith. Sometimes just taking refuge itself, taking the refuges is is uh, takes a bit of doing, you know, because we're so on edge or so uh, caught up in uh, having to be and become and find and know and figure it out, and get on top of things that. Uh, to really just go to a more yielding space, which perhaps at first is less less smart, less clever, less affirmative, a kind of softness, a soft, humble kind of well, I know this, this I know directly. You know, here's my here's my place of here's my place where the anxiety or the worry or the, the stress and strain stops. Practicing within that context and trying to actually establish that context, and then you know get familiar with it. That 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 feeling, that kind of energy of the mind or sphere of consciousness, and then practice from that. You know, saying that the practice from that we call viveka or non-attachment. Non-attachment is like the refuges in in action, if you like, or in relationship to what's happening. It means that we, with our body and mind, we're not tensed up, we're not demanding, we're not um, ashamed, we're not uh, guilty, we're not frightened, we're not desperate. We can find a refuge place and we can be at that refuge place of honesty, openness and recognizing without uh, a lot of hankering or dejection. Okay, this is the way the body is. This is what it feels, this is what the feelings are. The mind is like this now. Now it's bright, now it's happy. Now it's sad, now it's dejected. Now it's dark, now it's turbulent. That, then and actually, if you practice in that way, you'll find the refuge continually strengthens in you, the ability to, to be spacious about your your jealousy or your craving or your you know, even the, the rather dark side of things. Yeah. You know, if you want to re- realize and 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 uh, how does an unenlightened person get to become enlightened? You know, when the basic you see the whole kind of impossibility of that. We have to go to the refuge place rather than ourself. So, you know, I think maybe. Maybe this is becoming a clearer experience. The precepts are like uh, the willing, the practicality, which is the hallmark of uh, particularly of, of Buddhist spirituality. Is it's very earthy, it's very pragmatic. It's not. Uh, it's got its philosophy and it's got its high and refined ideas, but it's always grounded on, you know, the acceptance of basically. You've got to you've got to fit within a particular earthbound experience, 
where there's, where there's the possibilities for fear and violence and abusing people and abusing yourself. Very distinct and available options. And you actually set up the context saying, I'm going to put everything, you know, I'm going to put an effort into just you know, establishing a ground of my life where this stuff is not going to take over. You can still experience the, the, that, the, what we call the vipaka, or the, 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 like the remembered, or the habits that have been established. We still experience our violence and rage, our craving and desires, you know, wanting to escape our escapist fantasies. But you're actually putting a, putting a, a, a ring around it, a fence around it, so you don't act on it. And then you can, then you can contemplate these and the Dharma, that the Dharma refuge is that which which is called the highest medicine. In that it, um, you know, just by being able to be mindful and get the trust and the dispassion to be mindful of these these um, karmic tendencies, they they gradually the, the passion dies out of them. You know, you you stop wincing and uh, and believing in in the in the moods of the mind. And with that, when the passion dies out of them, they start to just lose their energy systems and they begin to just kind of drop away and fade out. That's very pragmatic. There's nothing, you know, you don't have to be a saint. You know, it's just kind of this, this real clear reality of, you know, this is the stuff that the human beings have got to deal with. And none of us were born in, in on lotus leaves. We were all kind of drag ourselves up through kinds of squabbling and fighting and grabbing and seizing and demanding and, and complaining and all that kind of stuff. So we're all kind of human beings. This is a teaching for human beings who were, who were a bit grubby and admired and bashed up a bit. <laughs> The Buddha said, "This is where this is teaching the the human realm. Because despite all of that, the miracle, the beauty of it, despite all that, is that we can, all of us, we can for at one moment at a time. Sometimes only for one moment, we can step out of it. We can say, we can rise up. We can say, that's that, and we can refrain." You know, and you've got, sometimes you've got to make your practice just very much a moment, a moment, a moment, like as you notice with your practice of meditation, to be mindful. You know, you realize that the thing doesn't just stay there, does it? You know, you've got to keep lifting it on and then reflecting on and uh, uh, holding and grasping and when you're deceiving yourself, kind of imagining you're, you're with your breath when really you're, it's, you've lost the moorings altogether. And it really is often a kind of moment by moment uh, attending and balancing and beginning again. This is the context of the practice. It would be wrong, it would be, it would be corrupt to say it's anything other than that. It's anything, you know, there's no one, there's no magic in it. There's no, you know, just do this and everything's going to be all right. There's no thing as, you know, now you do a retreat and all, your, all the problems are solved. But in a retreat you can actually remember a context 
rehearse a context, refresh it, commit yourself, get that feeling of, of uprightness, and then you know, then you've got to go on and keep with it and keep realizing the context. The idea of precepts and refuges is to establish a context that's not dependent on a particular person being around or, or in a particular group or a you know, building or something or even a particular posture. These are fine. These are great. You know, it's lovely when these the chances can happen to us. But uh, we've got to use these to invest <coughs> in what will really take us through, keep us going, rather than just have a nice time. You know, or have something, another experience that begins and ends. You think, well, that was good. Now something else. You know? You've got to be able to invest in it. And. Uh, establish in your own consciousness benchmarks and, and positions and angles and means and resolutions that you, that you can use. Ones that will really work. Now, the, the Buddha Dharma is a, is a very large context. It's a kind of total context. You take precepts and refuges, for example. That's a very total, that can take, that's for a lifetime context. You know, you can be uh, more or less any kind of, of, uh, of personality can work with that in any in any state, you know, you can be really depressed and wretched and you can still you can still hang on to those. You can still live within that context. Um, and it's the sadness sometimes that uh, you know, the frustration one can feel with, with um, Dharma meditators and, is, is that they make you know, too much rests upon a particular form or technique. Not that that's invalid, but you can't make a total life context out of it. And sometimes it's like the feeling that a particular system gets extracted out of that context, cut out of it, and set up on its own. Or a teacher. You know, you decide for this teacher and you take it out of that, out of that context and you set it up on its own so you belong to that teacher or you belong to that system. You know, this is the only way you can do it through this particular system and style, and it's 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 um, really painful to see how you know we can actually because maybe a teacher is you know you really get you really get some good results with a particular teacher or a particular system. It's not to deny that, but but when you extract it from the total context of Buddha Dharma. And it's like you cut you, you, you it's like you, you cut a body and you just maybe cut the head off. And you like the head, you know, the head's the bit that talks, so you like that. <laughs> so you know, it gives great talk, so you cut the head off because that's the bit that talks, and you keep keep that. But what about the feet, you know? What about the belly? What about the lungs? What about the heart? Aren't they important too? And you've got a, a whole human body? Can you just cut off the head? And say, you know, that's the that's the one that really works for me. That's the one I like. 
It's got to have a it's got to have a body, doesn't it? Yesterday I was just maybe touching into these these like barometers. This reflection, you notice that. Um, what I call, we have tendencies. That is, we easily run, we, in any situation, we can easily run towards, say, fear or irritation or anger or conceit or something like that. You know, uh, out, of, out of a controlled situation, out of something where we feel comfortable, something happens to us, you know, there's an accident, there's a, an unknown situation, there's a sense of not being, you know, on top of things or disempowered. And then, which way does our mind run? Does it run towards oh, you know, I can't do it, I'm getting out of here, this isn't what I've, you know, I can't manage this. Or does it run towards anger, you know, you can't do this to me, this shouldn't be happening, you get irate. These are called um, the latent, latent tendencies, you know, the way the, mind, the way the mind runs towards certain, you know, then it gets embedded in that particular uh, attitude or angle. And we can notice in it, it's our meditation, you know, when your mind is wanders off and it doesn't do what it's supposed to do, where do, where do you run? Where does it go to? Where does the heart run to? Does it run to self-punishment and disparagement? Do you get angry and annoyed? Does, does the heart stop blaming people and things? This stupid system doesn't work. Why are they bothered? Why do you have to do this? Does it, or does it, <laughs> you know, does it go into depression? Well, Useless, can't, never done. My life has never worked out anyway. I can't do it. Or distraction, you know, where you just keep looking at something else all the time. Just to to witness what are they called these latent tendencies, anutsaya. And uh, paramita are like the things that you you are heart practices that you you put in. So that, that instead of running that direction, you run the other way. You kind of train your heart to run the other way or to, to plod the other way or to work the other way. So, you know, with anger, you know, when you're tendency towards anger, then you're putting in something like a tendency towards, towards acceptance or kindness or non-aversion. Tendency towards distractedness, we put in a tendency towards resolution, staying with something. And, and so that, that, without maybe going into a lot of details on the, all these different forms, to get the essence of what, what a paramita is about, is like, a, you know, like you're training your heart to, 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 to go into a, a particular attitude. Is there a chance for me to be patient today rather than you know, having that, even that kind of idea in mind. Is there a chance for me to, to, expect, to express my appreciation, my gratitude? Do we ever do that? You know, like, love, kindness is just as that much that rather than getting by and saying, yeah, everything's okay, and, you know, taking things for granted, to, to actually make, take the opportunity to, to, to bring forth and express and manifest a kind gesture, a kind deed.
Not because it's wanted or needed or demanded or you have to do it to placate somebody, but just the free will gift. Um, paramita. So you, that in that, and a wise person realizes, if I'm being, you know, if I'm being kind to you, maybe you like it, maybe you don't like it, maybe you don't even notice it. You know, maybe you take it for granted, maybe you think, maybe you misinterpret it. So I can't really be certain whether it's doing, you know, whether it's doing you any good, because for it to do you any good is up to you, really, how you receive it. But what I can know is I'm doing myself some good. So with this, again, it's this tremendous, you know, realism and practicality of the Buddha is saying not that you can't help anybody else or don't bother, but when it comes down to it, the only thing you can really, you know, realistically know you're doing is you're doing yourself some good. And this doesn't mean being selfish, but it's just a, a, a realistic understanding of what actually happens. Yeah. When you like, if you uh, say with loving kindness, for example, you don't know whether somebody else is going to appreciate that, receive it, be interested, misunderstand it, think you're trying to dupe them. But all you can know is that when your heart is opening like that, it's doing you some good with generosity and kindness. It's like, do you have to say, do you deserve it? You know, I don't think you deserve it. What kind of attitude is that? Or if I give, if I give this to you, will, will you, you know, can I win you over? What kind of parameter is that? But just that, you know, it's a, it's a realism. This is very helpful to recognize this, this prag- pragmatic, realistic attitude in, in, in the living in the world. Because you don't always, you're not always going to get wonderful responses from people in doing your practice. People may not understand, think you're weird, or you can't really communicate or talk about it. You just try, instead of trying to talk about or, or relate through some esoteric meditation practice, just just practice that developing paramita, being nice to people. <laughs> Say, you know, developing patience. Uh, So I remember one of the the, uh, one of the monks would say he was going out on one of his, these these walks, these kind of you know walks we do in the daytime, and walking past uh, somebody, this guy this guy comes out and says, "Hey, what are you? Hey, you, what are you doing then? What are you? you know, what are you? What's, what are you about? What do you believe in then?" And the monk said. Uh, my practice is being peaceful with people. You know, just a kind of friendly, easy response, rather than, well, you know, we we believe that you've got to do this, and you've got to do that, and you, just that kind of response like that. So, in this way, you actually you're always establishing a place of non-contention, and, and you're actually 
manifesting what Dharma is rather than talking about it. To really, then, then you don't, when you manifest it, there's no real arguments. There's no misunderstandings. When you talk about it, it's always, well, yeah, oh, yeah, well, I heard this, and well, I don't see that. Do you really believe that you can be reborn as a toad if you do this? And you know, this kind of stuff. And what about the reincarnation, life after death? And do you really believe that you know you can reincarnate as something, or is there no soul or no self, or there's no self, who are you then? And thinking, oh. <laughs> and you think, oh, forget it, you know. But, you, but as, a, as a practice, just practicing those, those, those just set, setting up so you practice those parameters is a real blessing to the world. And it's, doing, and it's the thing that really does us good, too. Certainly, living as a Buddhist monk in the West, it's you develop a lot of parami like that, a lot of paramita. Just because you have to be, you have to be more, you have to put more effort into it. People don't don't accept you. They don't. It's not all taken for granted. You know, you ha- you're on the edge all the time. You have to really practice being patient because things don't go easily. You have to practice being kind because people aren't always so nice. Like you're in, in Thailand, everybody's really respectful and nice to you. There's no effort being kind to people who are nice to you. <laughs> and in, in a, you know, you go to London and people start shouting at you, and uh, and uh, somebody threatening to kill me. I was on a train, I just sit on a train, and this guy comes along and says. What do you think you are doing? I'm just sitting there. Well, not doing anything actually. I'm just sitting here on a train. And he, and he started to get really angry. You know, he wanted to kill me. And you, you know, you realise that that it's just this person, just all kinds of projections and things coming up in his mind. And but just to stay peaceful. <laughs> Say and uh, just refuse to budge from that position. I'm not going to fight. I'm not going to deny anything. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to try and prove anything. I'm just going to stay at that level of this is what I am. This is what I'm doing. I'm not trying to put anybody down. I'm not trying to make any statements. I'm not trying to say I've got the best thing going. I'm just doing this. I'm not going to say that Buddhism is the greatest thing in the world and everybody should be it. I'm just doing this. When you practice paramita, you, you also it's conjoined with what's called making merit, which is often another thing that mis- can be misunderstood because it's got such a kind of most monetaristic attitude to it, like investing and making merit. But in a pragmatic sense, it is. It's called it's an inner wealth. It's like putting money in the bank, and it's rather like that. Making merit. Um, is like like establishing things such as paramita, refuges, precepts. They're called theirs are called very meritorious, and maybe you don't like the word, but that that's the word that's used for that particular action. 
In other words, what, why it's called inner, cultivating inner wealth is that you, you establish something that will enrich you spiritually, whatever, you know, whether times are hard or, or whether they're not, whether people around you can receive you, accept where you're at or not, whether your meditation is going well or it's not, you know, whether your concentration is good or bad. You can still, you can make uh, merit through these paramita. And that's perhaps a more helpful reflection than when you just cut the head off of this cultivation and say, you know, did you, were you able to notice every sensation in your nostrils when you breathed in and out? You know, no, I wasn't, I didn't get it. nostrils, I didn't get nostrils at all. You know, and then the feeling like you failed again, didn't you? And then, you know, you talk to somebody on the street about Dharma, do you believe in nostrils or what? And say, well, well, what do you want to do that for? You know, what do you, what, what, what's a big deal? You know, what's the point of watching your sensations in your nostrils? It's <laughs> some kind of nut, you know? <laughs> of course, there's a lot of point in doing it in, in the right context. There's a tremendous value and advantage in that. But if you kind of cut that out and you, you miss the ground, you, you, like, the thing just is weird. And actually, when it comes down to it, I expect that most of us are going to find it very difficult to, uh, to really be aware of the sensations of breath in your nostrils uh, in, a, in a day. Or even when you go, go home and you have your, your, uh, you know, your half an hour sit in the evening or whatever. You know, you've just been with a class of 40 screaming kids for all, all day long. And not breath in your nostrils is not really going to make a strike an impingement on your brain. <laughs> And you just kind of come home through the subway. There's a you know, gang of toughs on the subway and people bashing and screaming and things like that. And forget, forget it about mindful inhalations, you know. You just get home and sit there and, and be with all that feeling and find a place where, a refuge place where you, you can, you know, you can just hold your, yourself on that. Say, now I'll just be patient with this stuff. Now I just try to be a little more, a little more equanimous, or a little wiser, or a little more honest about what's happening. You know, then, then you know, may, maybe you'll find you can just get to bodily awareness or the mood of the heart. And you know, you never know. After half an hour or so, you might even get a few of those inhalations and exhalations going. But you see, you've got to, you've got to take. You've got to get the context of it, and then you, you, know, you can work towards these refined points and more specialized points as the situation allows. If you just set up the meditation as, as a particular you know, classical exercise without seeing it in context, it's a disaster. That basically means that, that after a while you just can't be bothered to do it. You know, it's stressful enough anyway, living life in the world without creating another set of demands and things you've got to achieve when you get home and in the evening. Do you make your meditation a refuge or another achievement, competition, performance, duty experience? The idea of the, you know, the, or the, the wise insight into this kind of field of merit 
is that you is that you you by by the spiritual goodness, the spiritual insights, you kind of you invest them into life forms, you know, like life forms, life attitudes, life directions. So it, you know, as you as your insight ripens and matures, you think, right, I don't need that. I can drop that. You know, and you cultivate renunciation. You say, you know, I don't need smoking, or I don't need TV, or I don't need, you know, sort of some you know, entertainments, or whatever. You know, it's up to you. But you know, just recognizing, just having that that idea in mind that that to 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 cultivate any degree of renunciation is is merit. It, it, because what it does is it establishes a place where of of letting go of of, of simplicity, and then being able to to be more direct, be in touch with your heart, with your karma, just by simplification. That kind of process, not a puritanical process. It's a very pragmatic realization that basically. If the more you the more you simplify, the easier it's going to get because you've got just less less um, less monkeys on your wagon. And in particular, things you can you can pick up and and determine, like you know, I will do this. You know, I'm going to just. Get down there, and once a day, twice a day, I'm just, I'm just going to get get on that the mat, and I'm going to sit there. You know, and it's not going to be just the times when I feel good, or what a, what a rapturous experience it will be. Or it's just going to be you're going to do that, and you cultivate parameter around that. So the, the merit of resolution means that with that, you, your mind becomes increasingly more uh, upright, more able to, to stand up on its own and not have to latch on to special experiences or states or, or success experiences to keep going. A mind that has to continue to have successes to hang on to is, is, in, is in trouble. Because how, how many of your life experiences can you say are successes? I mean, they don't have to be failures either, but why do we have to see things in, the, in those terms? Is this pleasant or stimulating, or, or is it just, I don't know what it is, it's just all right? Or it's this way, or it's feelings? And uh, just developing that, that sense of... Um, you know, resolution and, and patience and persistence has got that merit to it in that you begin to let go of those values of it's got to be good, it's got to be happy, it's got to be pleasant, it's got to be meaningful, it's, I've got to understand it before I can do it. So we just find ourselves capable of developing, a, you know, a mind state that arises independent from these worldly values. An upright mind.
So we can we can determine activities, you know, particular things we do, things we don't do, places. It's uh, it's unfortunate when uh, a society can't get any sense of the value of sacredness. You know, when when sacred, sacredness becomes just uh, kind of dead, um, phony thing, when it becomes a ba- uh, debased by, say, by corruption, by corrupt use of it, say, with, uh, you know, religious forms, when they get corrupt, really, uh, really debase the whole ability of the heart to, to, to have sacredness. And when so often in, in uh, societies, then the religious forms are used just to morally back up the political structures or the social structures. So you can't respect them. You know, when, when God is always on your side and somehow, uh, you know, it seems to be rather partial. <laughs> and, the, and, uh, and signs up for the, uh, you know, particular political... Or, or you know, or nationalistic or imperial attitudes and, and aims, which is what they tend to do. You know, these kind of imperial powers always enrol God in their army. They're fighting for what's right, or so on. And this is just uh, kind of the way that uh, world worldly powers tend to corrupt the sacred. It's, it's, uh, the, the demerit of this is that uh, it, it means that, that people lose that incredible value of, of context, a sacred context, a sense that life is sacred, humans are sacred, purity is sacred, trust is sacred. These are things we do not debase, abuse. We don't cheapen it, we don't manipulate it. And when that's lost, you really you have the society's in great difficulties. So one has to establish a, a kind of sacredness of things that we, we raise up higher than our immediate desires and likes and dislikes, and are even higher than our intellect. There are things that we just revere and bow to. And to create uh, and, and, and make use of sacredness. You know, your sacredness is just the, the dimension of, you can just make it even just around your meditation. You know, that, that the thing, that's something you revere and you, you give yourself to and you stay with it, you know, you know through thick and thin. And in that, you, in that place of meditation, you try, you don't lie to yourself. And you don't uh, fight, and you don't distract, and you don't abuse, and to have a time when at least that's your, at least that's your aim and your your intention. So you can create even create even a sacred space in your home or in your house, where you, people often find that uh, over a period of time they want to have a shrine, you know, or a room or a place where. There's maybe an image or light or flowers or something, something that they just use like that. So this is a sacred space. 
I go in, here's the place where I let go of my anger, here's the place where I uh, say, look at my greed or guilt, and, you know, I don't lie here, I don't uh, hang out here, I just do it for that. Because most of us realize that our, our spiritual stamina is, is uh, patchy, and you can't always make it. So uh, these, these are lovely ideas and ideals, but when it comes down to being very pragmatic about it, how often, how much of the time can you really stay at, at a very pure, sustained level before something in you think, ah, oh, you know, come on, take it easy now, it's all right. And you get these kind of feelings, or you, something in you wants to cut corners, and, well, if I don't, I don't have to lie, but maybe if I don't tell it the entire truth, you know, it'd be a bit easier that way. And particularly in, in um, you know, in, in business and things like that, and in relationships with people who perhaps are, are not used to honesty. It's difficult to be honest without, you know, hurting people's feelings. And uh, difficult to be trusting. So sometimes we find that you just, oh, you know, can't, it's too, too difficult to keep at that level. But then what you do is you can at least establish places or times or situations or, or people that you can be that with. So sacredness involves a place. You can say it involves a sangha. That is, a sangha is not just a group of people. The sangha is a group of people who create a sphere of sacredness. You know, where it's okay to disagree. You know, you can look at disagreement in a, in a right, well that's that, and that's that. You don't have to fight over it. And there's a common honor. The idea of, uh, you know, monasteries and monastics and so on is to have a place or a situation where you can, where you, you know, you can bring forth your best. And it's, as I say, with any other action of, of merit or paramita, then, you know, you may think you're helping them out, you may think it's good and so on, but, and it probably is, but also to recognize it's, it's good because it's, it's you're cultivating something for yourself. So when we use monastery dharma centers, a place that, you know, you can make any place sacred. If you make a, but then monasteries and dharma centers are more capable because the, they are, they're attuned to that way of thinking. At least we, they should be, the good ones. I mean, perhaps they, you know, not, certainly not all monasteries are that dharmic. And I imagine that the same thing goes with dharma centers all sorts of power struggles and fighting going on in a lot of, lot of places, the human element. But if we actually try to use it as a place where, well, here I don't lie, here I don't fight, here I don't cheat, here I'm honest, here I don't push and, and here I don't complain, here I don't backstab, here I take responsibility. If I can just do it in this place for this time, you know, so that you kind of keep establishing places, situations, where you bring forth your best. So that that's that has got a great value to it because then the place starts the place or the situation starts to work for you. You know, that when you, you go to that place or that space, 
And it, you know, so it reminds you, it says to you, hey, you know, this is the place where remember, and you, you know, you get the feeling, you got the, you've laid down good karma, so that naturally that place or that person or that group brings up in you what's what's most honourable and bright. And just again, being very very pragmatic, when you can't handle it, when you can't do your do what's honourable or bright, it's best to you know get out of the place rather than rather than destroy it. Because uh, you want to want to have a place where the thing that you know about it is here's where I here's where I brought forth the best I could at that time. It may not be perfect, but I was really you know trying and aspiring and uh, letting go of things in this, then it, then it will tend to work for you. Uh, the, like um, with the, the Buddha said that, uh, for example, for the monastic sangha, he said, you know, uh, that you, if you live the monastic life loosely or corruptly, it, it's, it's worse than... Uh, then if you didn't live it, it says it drags you to hell, is his expression. Because it's like you're, you're dishonoring or cheapening something that uh, should be a place of reverence. So it's actually, you're actually soiling it for yourself and for others. So that, that you're using, using places and situations. And that, you're know, creating contexts. Now it's something that... Uh, you know, religious forms are there to as symbols of that, Buddha images. So I remember Ajahn Sumedha telling me this woman had a drink problem and she just used the Buddha image and she put a Buddha image right in her living room, you know, so that she wouldn't have a drink in front of the Buddha. <laughs> you know, the Buddha's sitting there, you think, you know, you're not going to get you're not going to hit the bottle with the Buddha sitting right in front of you. No, I mean, you can't say that. Well, it's a silly little image. What good's that? It's only made out of clay anyway. There, you know. But but you actually empower something like that. So just just having something of that nature, maybe something that works for you. Certainly, um, if we don't, whether you use a Buddha image or don't use a Buddha image, you realise that to, in order to get past some of these karmic obsessions. You've got to have that feeling that you, you can rise up. There's, there's a value that you can touch in your heart that you can rise up to. Otherwise, you've got the upright mind. Either in another person, in yourself, in a place, in a community. That, that ability, that, that which causes you to rise up. And so we have to create places that do that. And spaces and relationships, and groups, and, Im- and images, and symbols. If you're wise, you create as many as you possibly can. As many good karmic um, benchmarks as you possibly can. You say, you know, I don't do this to humans. With humans, I don't, you know. You can do it to all human beings, or with living creatures. You know, I don't kill living creatures. I respect their life. I don't abuse people. And we can, we can try to establish that with, with other humans or with just our family.
you know, this is someone I'm honest with. I take responsibility. In that kind of, in that pragmatic vein, the Buddha talked often about what what are the conditions uh, for the welfare of the Sangha. And it was there was a chance, there was an occasion when he was uh, when he was um, asked by these ministers, some ministers of a particular kingdom, about what their chances were of being able to destroy a neighbouring republic. And, he said, and the Buddha said, "Well, uh, do they do they respect their elders? And do they, uh, as long as they respect their elders, you know, so they revere people who are more experienced and they listen and they give them time and they're patient and they have the respect. Do they meet together often and discuss things and talk in harmony?" And attend to what's proper, and, and and talk about it in a reasonable manner, and and gather in harmony, and and disperse in harmony, and do it frequently. And he said, "Well, then you won't be able to destroy them." And he gave this whole list, some of which I've uh, I can't bring to mind right now. He talked about things like, uh, you know, does. Uh, are the women folk, are they protected and looked after? Are they abused? What's the sign of a society that's healthy? Is basically what's being said. So, you know, you have to, when we, and we look at our, our societies, and you think, well, how does it check, how does it, how does it work out like that? Are people abused? Are women abused? Are the kind of the, 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 the weaker or the gentler or the, the, uh, the less powerful, are they, are they abused? Or are they cherished and protected? Not very good, is it? <laughs> when we look at it like that, do we respect, respect the elders or do we just think, ah, oh, Silly old fool, you know, can't run so fast anymore, get him out of the way. We only want the young and the beautiful and the, and the people who are really cool and with it. Or do we think, this person's been alive for 60, 70 years. They've, they've been through a lot of stuff, you know. They've been through the whole kind of sexual cycle and they've seen, got to the end of that. They've had children, they, you know. Maybe they, they talk slow, but they've probably got their heart maybe worth listening to. Do we do that? Or do we just kind of attach to the most superficial values and dismiss the rest? Now, the, uh, you know, the, the merit is to develop that, that respect and that reverence. We may think, you know, if you respect and revere somebody else, that you're putting them up and you're pushing yourself down. You're saying, you're better than me. I'm useless. You know, you have power over me. This is the way the worldly mind works. But in, in spirituality, reverence and revering is that which is conducive to your own uprightness. There's no point in doing it otherwise. But to, to be able to revere means there's core values here that I empathize with, and that's what I'm 
that's what I'm focusing on. Yeah, you know, like there's gentleness here. I I, re- I revere that. There's there's honesty here. That's what I revere. So whenever we we revere something, a person, an image, an ang- an attitude, a community, or whatever, a place that has those in it, then we're saying we're defining and re-establishing our own core values rather than am I happy, am I succeeding, do people like me, you know, am I the most popular person, da, 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 da. am I a really good meditator, you know, all this kind of stuff. Am I a success? Is truth a success? Is gentleness a success? Is honesty a success or is it a failure? It doesn't work within those worldly values, does it? So the merit and the merit, merit of our lives is to be able to put energy and effort and dynamic into picking up those, making the work, bringing them out in our lives for our own welfare. And as it's so often said, for one's own welfare and for the welfare of others. The two are not distinct, they're not separate. For our long-lasting welfare and happiness, it's this kind of Buddhist phrase. Please accept these offerings for a long-lasting welfare and happiness. And what's that? Is, is it that if we do this with a Buddha image, is it, is it the Buddha's going to look after us forever? You know, do you think do you think that's what you're supposed to believe, or that you're you know you're doing favors to some supernatural being who will write it up in the credit book in the sky and make sure you have a good rebirth? Or isn't it really that the attitude of revering that which is truth and wisdom and serenity and gentleness is actually defining and bringing to consciousness those values. If we hold those, that will be for our long-lasting welfare and happiness. A happiness is not about just the momentary stimulation or excitement of the moment, but the happiness of one's own well-being, one's own honour, one's own confidence, one's own merit. Is why merit is called the real inner wealth. The thing you can count on when the chips are down, when you're sick, or you're, you know, when you're dying, when you're having a hard time, when things aren't working out on a worldly level, then, then you realize the inestimable value of, of, of merit. Other things just are not going to do it. Wealth isn't going to do it. Even ordinary, ordinary friendships are not going to do it. So a wise person, a person who begins to understand the flow and the, the continuity of practice, the, the way that every facet of it is part of a whole system. It's nothing, you can't take one facet out and say this is it. It has to be the, the, the whole system. And the maturing of insight is to, is to recognize and get a feeling for this sense of everything connects to everything else in Dharma practice. And any action, small, internal, great, external, whatever, any action of manifesting and bringing forth that, the, the going forth heart, the wisdom, the, the triple gem in your own heart will be 
once for the, the furtherance and continu- continuation of all your practice. Last time I was in Thailand, I was talking to one of the, the monks, and he'd uh, it was quite quite recently gone forth as a bhikkhu, and he'd been uh, he'd uh, been practicing for well maybe fifteen years or so before he became a bhikkhu, and during all that time he'd uh, he had he was married, and he had children and so on, and. Uh, he realized that his heart was set on the spiritual life. But he thought, he thought um, well, uh, you know, right now my responsibility is the wife and children. This is my responsibility. I can't just say, well, tough luck, bye. So he stayed with that and he made it quite clear, you know, this is what I'm doing and, uh, you know, I'd really, this is what I'm, my, my heart is into, but I'm not going to let you down. So he worked and he worked regularly and he his children grew up, the girl was about 22 and the boy was about 18. And, uh, you know, and he had to, then as a vicar you had to ask permission from your family. Is it, is it all right? You know, can you get by? And then he, he, got, he worked hard so he got his wife a, a big house and, uh, and so on. Anyway, you know, go into all the details of it. But so you could really feel that everybody was happy and, and realized that this, this okay thing to do. So he'd made a lot of merit in his practice just by doing that much, just by making that, that sacred. So you see, even like the form of it, it's not really the form, it's the attitude towards it, isn't it, that, 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 that merit is happening in. And you could say, well, you know, if he had just walked out and said, well, bye now, and he could have had all that more years to practice in. He could have gone to a monastery and you know, developed more practice. But practice actually has to, be, has to be in the context of where you're at. Which uh, you've got to keep aware of. Where you're at emotionally, where you're at, you know, where you're at, really. Different, different, different for different people, different times. We don't always know. Anyway, this this chap, he'd, um, after all these years, you know, he thought, well, this is, I want to get off, and you know, I've done my, I've done my time in the world, worked all these hours, all these days, you know, developed this kind of one-pointed resolve. So he, then he's had to spend two years as an anagarika, kind of working and serving, and then he. Well, he got the came a bhikkhu, and he w- he was in Thailand. He had a chance to get get out, you know, get off in the forest finally after twenty years or so. <laughs> get off and really get to a quiet place where I can just really sit down and, and meditate, and uh, you know, on that. He went to this he went to the uh, monastery off in um, Kanchanaburi province, which is one of the kind of more wilder jungle provinces of Thailand. That would really be out of it there. And he went to a monastery. There was only about three monks in the monastery. And this monastery was a huge area of land, forest land. And, uh, and then the, the abbot of the monastery decided they, they needed to, to do some work to, uh, I think they were building a dam or something across a river or fixing a bridge. So they're working all these incredible hours, like 10 hours a day out in the sun, sweating. <laughs> 
because it's really hot. <laughs> you know, getting really tired and just work, working. Because sometimes it's like that in monasteries. You just get out and work. You know, and that's your practice. You're working and, and watching, watching the mind and, and being with the physical states and the mental states that come up. And you have to do that. And he said, you know, at the end of the day, uh, sit down. Like, you know, after doing all this at the end of the day, I just to sit down and, and I, I kind of, you know, feel really tired and hot and worn out. And he said, and then I, you know, I wanted to be complaining. I wanted to be going into my mind and thinking, what a rough deal I'm getting, you know, all those years of work, and I come here to get some peace of mind, and they put me out and I'm working and hammering, getting hot, and I came here to meditate. He said, I actually wanted to have that happening. I wanted to be complaining, but I sat there and I felt all this joy coming up in my mind. <laughs> he said, and that was the most disturbing of all. <laughs> and I don't want this joy. I want to feel, I want to complain, I want to bitch, I want to moan about what a lousy deal I'm getting, instead of getting all this joy. Um, <laughs> but sometimes it's like that, you know. Sometimes uh, the, uh, we, we surprise ourselves. But, you know, why? Because, because actually at a subliminal level, sometimes the insight practice works at subliminally. You get a feeling, you just get a gut knowledge of, well, it doesn't make sense according to the theory, but somehow this is what, this is the, this feels like this is the place of peace or giving or generosity or honesty or patience. It's, it, that's the place of it. Those are the values I revere. And I've got to go with that. Even if it's weird or uncomfortable or uncertain, you know, I've got to go to that place. Maybe you don't even think it, you feel yourself unavoidably. Because your mind, your heart, when you've trained it over meditation and practice over years, your heart, just like before it would go to complaining instinctively, it just goes to patience instinctively. It goes to um, kindness instinctively. And so, you know, and then something you wishes it wouldn't, almost. You think, I want to complain, I want to... But then you find you don't, and you just, well, that's life, you know. <laughs> and you do it. And then you, you realize, you know, like, who's leading this practice now? It's not me. There's this kind of, there's this dumber volition that's taking it along. And the me in my mind is going, hey, wait a minute, I don't, I, you know, I, I don't think I'm like this, but you're doing it anyway. And certainly my practice has been quite a lot like that, really. You know, on the me level of, I don't want this, I don't like this, this isn't fair. But then you, then you, you find yourself doing it because it's a place of giving up and of letting go and of of uh, doing what is right. Really, I went to the when the, my teacher Ajahn Sumedho asked me to go to help him begin the monastery of Amaravati. You know, so. Uh, which I knew was going to be difficult because it was a somewhat different enterprise. You know, it wasn't really a, purely a monastery. It was also a retreat center and much more a place for lots of people to come to have festivals and, and uh, you know, ceremonies and lots of things happening. So a fairly busy, active place, a big place. And just a few of us to try to set it up from scratch. You know, but then this is my teacher. 
So what do I say you know, to, to the teacher? You say, oh no, sorry teacher, well thanks a lot, but you know, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I really want to do that right now, um, but I wish you well, good luck. You know, do you, you, you feel, well that's, that's, that's my teaching, you know. That's what you do. And, uh, you know, and you go and you, and you work and it's hard. And it's confusing because we don't have the right, uh, we don't know how to do it. And it's a lot of hard work and it's a lot of uh, running around in circles. It's a lot of confusion, a lot of uh, accidentally crossing each other and uh, getting mishaps happening. And, uh, you know, when you sit in the evening and meditate and you're just rehearsing the, the, the painful scenarios of the day, or you're sitting there in the evening, you're meditating and you feel drowsy and you're falling apart, you know, or you're sitting there thinking about the next day, oh, I've got to get that done and fix that, and so and so, you know. This isn't meditation, what am I doing? You know, you're, or you're always like 18 hours a day with, with other humans, running around doing this, not as you're running, but just kind of continuing other human contact, talking all the time, and then you sit down in the evening and you go to your meditation practice and it's just a jumble. You think, wow, am I doing the right thing? Or, But you find, you, you know, you, in your heart, you know, what else can you do? This is the situation. And you just keep going to it and practicing and being there and looking at the doubt or the fear or the resentment. And but then what, what choice have you got? You just want to cop out Say, I can't be bothered. And I found over time, you know, that over, over a period of time, that what was happening was I was starting to, uh, I wasn't getting more concentrated. I wasn't getting into, into any jhanic states. What I was doing was starting to let go of my views and opinions. My fixed attitudes. Starting to let go of my, uh, hey, I want this, you know, I want, I want, and starting to actually, I didn't come and become a monk in order to love people. I come a monk in order to get away from people, get out of this world, this crummy world, get enlightened and nuts to you. <laughs> get out of my way. And then, you know, in this situation in the monastery, and you find that, yeah, I can't do that anymore. I can't say, sorry, I'm too busy to listen. I can't say that. You know? I can't, I can't put people down. You start to feel you, you gotta, you, 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 all you can do is love people. You can't always find the answers. You can't say, well, okay, you know, you do this and everything's going to be all right next. Thing, you know? you gotta, you gotta say, well, I, I don't know, but, um, you can share the space. So practice sometimes, uh, just what I mean, like not having something on the agenda. You realize that, that practice has got, something's got its own dynamic. You know? And when you set up sacred places, sacred attitudes, sacred values, and you, you follow them, your heart follows them, 
And your practice, your apparent practice, has to just learn to keep in line with that. And you find, you know, hey, I, I didn't, I didn't develop more concentration, but I found out how to be more loving. I didn't even realize I wanted to do that or needed to do it. Or I didn't develop, uh, you know, more mindfulness, but I learned how to. Uh, I'm not so angry anymore. I don't have conceit anymore. There's more compassion. And in the total context of the practice, the Buddha said the way of progress, the graduated path, is quite clear. It's a natural thing. And there's a teaching where he said... um, you know, if you have freedom from, if you have good morals, good values, you don't, you don't have to, you, your mind is free from remorse and regret and that kind of hesitant state. If it's like that, you're going to find that uh, your mind is more happy. If your mind is more happy, you're going to find your body is more relaxed. If your body is more relaxed, your mind is happy, you're going to find that concentration just comes naturally. When it's like that, you're going to find that naturally you, you get insights into, into the way things are. As you get insights into the way things are, it's quite naturally you, you find that certain stuff just drops away, you're not interested in, you don't get bothered by, you don't get phased by. And so it's like that. You know, it's, it's a kind of graduated training and, and enrichment and uh, you know I want to make it clear that I'm not in any way putting down systems, meditation techniques concentration and, and so forth I'm only kind of you know teasing a little bit just because of the way that so often in Dharma practice those things have become taken out of context raised up and the feet have been cut off and the body's been cut off and the heart's been cut out all you, all you have left is a kind of palpitating brain <laughs> you know wondering why it's not working anymore and when it comes back to it to, to reinvest the richness the insights the values you establish in your practice put it back into the earth the context of your life. This is the, the wise way. And it's not just wise in some kind of refined, it's just basic common sense and uh, grounding yourself into, into what's going to be steady for you. Last chant to the sharing of merit. The um, what's it called? Bearings of sharing and aspiration.
sharing the blessing? Yeah. of sharing and aspiration through the goodness that arises from my practice may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue my mother my father and my relatives the sun and the moon and all virtuous leaders of the world may the highest gods and evil forces celestial beings guardian spirits of the earth and the lord of death May those who are friendly, indifferent, or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless. Through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing may all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth may I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom austerity and vigor may the forces of delusion not take hold nor weaken my resolve the Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, May darkness and delusion be dispelled.